0: Sneaking into plays at intermission proved to be more than just a fun pastime for Larry Dean Harris. He gained insight into a world he'd soon dive into full force. His very first play was a winner in the Midwest Playwrights Festival. Since then, his work has been named Critics' Pick by the LA Times, LA Weekly, and Backstage West. He's earned numerous LA Ovation Award nominations, as well as LA Weekly Theater Award nominations, including Best Playwriting. Larry is the founder of Playwright 6 and the West Coast representative for the Dramatist Guild of America. We talk to Larry about the pros and cons of producing your own work, how writing and performing monologues change the way he looks at words, and what the Dramatist Guild is all about, as Larry Dean Harris joins us right now on the Scripts and Scribes podcast. joined by playwright Larry Dean Harris. Hi, Larry. Well, hi. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful Southern California day, like it is 365 days a year, so.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm happy to do it. Thank you.
0: So, you are a professional playwright, and I wanted to ask you, when you were beginning your career, what drew you to playwriting? Um, for the most part, rather than, say, screenwriting or any other type of genre of writing?
1: It's really interesting. I call myself an accidental playwright because I never set out to be a playwright. I've been a writer my whole life. My career took me into advertising and public relations, and that took me to New York City when I was very, very young, 25. I got a job in New York, and I got a great apartment right in the heart of Hell's Kitchen, and every night I would walk home to the theater district. And money was tight then. I was young. It was my, you know, my first real serious job. And I would try to see plays as best as possible. But they were so expensive. And I quickly discovered this thing called second acting, which isn't as easy to do now as it used to be. But back then, people would come out of the intermission and smoke. And so you would just go and mill around with them. And then when they go back at the very last minute, you duck into the theater, hide out in the bathroom, wait for everybody to take their seats, and then go grab an empty seat. And so I would go and I would see the same play or musical over and over again. These were generally shows that weren't selling very well, so there were empty seats. But I would just study and watch and and be fascinated. I mean, I would spend an entire act watching the pit orchestra or watching – what was happening in the wing space or the lighting grid, and and seeing how actors did the same material night after night in very different ways. It was this extraordinary education, and that's when I said, okay, this is what I want to do.
0: That's a fantastic story.
1: It's crazy, right?
0: And it just opens your eyes to kind of see the strings behind everything that maybe a regular audience member wouldn't get to see.
1: I mean, if you really look, you can see so much going on. But, you know, people are so focused on the story, they don't realize it. But, you know, it's funny, all the pit orchestra people are down there reading books, you know, between numbers, and, and it's like a whole different world, and I would just study it, and I loved it.
0: And then what took you from that to, I, I see it, I want it, to actually doing it? What was that step like?
1: I had um, moved back to Toledo, Ohio, which is where I'm from originally, and I just got a wild hair. I had an idea, idea for a story. Um, it was based on myself and my boss. And we had a really interesting um, dynamic, the two of us. You know, me being a gay man, her being a Jewish woman. And I decided I want to write a play about the, the differences and the similarities between us. And that's what became my first play, Inverted Pyramid.
0: And that play actually won the Midwest Playwrights Festival, right?
1: It won third place. I always say a winner in the Midwest <laughs> Playwrights <laughs> well,
0: Festival. Well, that's still pretty impressive.
1: You know, it was very encouraging because um, there were a lot of entries, obviously, and to come in third with my very first work where really I didn't know a lot about what I was doing. I was, I was riding by the seat of my pants, and it was... It was great encouragement to me to, that said, "Okay, you can do this," and it led to my first production, my first professional production, um, at a wonderful theater in Ann Arbor um, called the Performance Network. And I had probably the best experience ever working with them because they they loved new new plays and they embraced them, and and you know it, you, you feel very um, Honored, and and that people are making such a fuss over a bunch of words you put on a page. You know, and you have actors and directors coming to you, and you know, what did you mean by this, and what did you mean by that? And and I worked with a terrific director who really helped me sculpt the play. He said, "What if we move act, you know, act two scene one to the end of the play?" And I was like, "That's crazy! That's brilliant!" You know, that kind of you know and. And we got terrific reviews, and we got lots of nice um, uh, honors at the end of the year by the Ann Arbor newspaper. And it it was a phenomenal experience, and I got very, very lucky. People talk about luck a lot. Sometimes there's luck. Sometimes you make it happen. But this, this case was luck.
0: And because you had such a hand in the production, which is unique in theater, I, I don't think it works the same um, with you know, TV or, or movies, you kind of write it, and you kind of give give it away. Yeah. What, what was it like to see your words come to life and actually have a hand in it?
1: It's amazing every time. Every time you see an actor take something, and, and when they bring they bring a new dimension to the character or a new insight that you didn't see, and they take a line that, you know, in your head was almost a throwaway line or a line to sort of help, help bridge a scene, and they they add something to it that wasn't there, and and that's just the most amazing feeling. And when you're part of the process, and every playwright should be, especially for their, you know, if it's a brand new work, um, it's 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 that kind of chemistry that you have, that dynamic where everybody has the same goal. You know, they want to get into this work, they want to they want to chew it up, they want to understand every little piece about it and and they want to do the best possible production. So it's an experience like, like none other. I have friends who have written screenplays and they've never seen their work. They you know, they've got a drawer full of screenplays. But I'm I'm lucky. I've seen everything I've written on stage either as a production or a reading.
0: Now has there ever been a time and I'm not trying to you know like make
1: you, Are you gonna pick me to the dark side?
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. But has there ever been a time where you're just frustrated because a line isn't playing the way you wanted it to or the way it sounded in your head or a joke just is not landing on the audience, right? Or, you know, something like that where you're just like, you're not understanding.
1: I have had that happen. I had a scene that I wrote, and I had an amazing actor in it, and the actor kept arguing with me, and he was right. He was right. He said, you know, you're writing comedy But I don't. I have to. I have to believe what I'm saying. He said, "I understand what you want. You want brilliant timing." He goes, "But this isn't a sitcom. It's a play." And it was. It was a good education for me that that you have to make it. Everybody has to make it work together. And it was probably one of the rare opportunities where I where I was frustrated because I never saw that that particular um, portion of the scene. Performed correctly, um, but that's that's the rarity, that's the abnormality. Um, mostly, actors actors really good actors tend to elevate the work, make you look better than you really are. Yeah,
0: well, I guess it's it's part of theater. It's a team project, and as much as it is your work that you wrote, once it's up there, it's not it's not anymore. It's everyone's work. So, yeah, you have to kind of let go a little bit.
1: And let me tell you, I, I, I tell this story. Um, I've been to some really hideous play readings, and the very worst play reading I ever attended was one of my plays. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Um, I had written a play. It was very funny. Um, I was part of the Playwright's Kitchen in Los Angeles, and we did a reading of it with brilliant actors, and they nailed it. And, you know, it was just a fun night at the theater. And then another theater got hold of it, asked to do a reading, and they they literally asked the actors who wanted to play what part. And so, which I thought was kind of bad, right? Up <laughs> with, um, and it was a nightmare. And I had invited friends, and my friends are sitting there and they're looking at me like, "This is awful. Why you drag this to the theater?" And I'm like, "No, it it was good. It, it's good." And and so you you, you sort of learn that that you do need that brilliant cast and director to elevate the work. I always I say a good play can rise above mediocre acting, but if you want to have a, a truly great production, you have to have everything. It all has to be there.
0: Yeah, and a great actor can also maybe bring up some patches of not-so-great writing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, so you live and work in L.A., um, and you did live in New York for a while. What brought you to l a especially as a playwright? I know um the the theater world here is good it's it's pretty big but it's nowhere near as you know massive as New York's playwriting community. Yeah.
1: Well, I lived in New York like I said when I was very young and i didn't i wasn't involved in the theater other than as a spectator there, but New York is a tough town. it can crush your soul, mm-hmm. and i'm I, I I got lured to California, um, I guess, when I turned 30. My old college roommate looked me up, and he was out here, and he said, you know, send me one of your plays, and I did, and he said, oh, well, we're going to do this big fancy reading of this play, and we're going to have uh, Chad Lowe and, um, oh, I can't think of her name. Shame on me. She, Lady Kazan. Mm-hmm. Tad Lowe and Laney Kazan are going to do this reading of your play. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. And I got on a plane and I came to California. And the reading never happened. But once I landed, I knew. I was like, oh, this is the place. And mm-hmm. and then I got involved with the Playwright's Kitchen, which is um, now defunct in Los Angeles for the most part. But what an experience. And we're very lucky here. Um, we have a, a thing called the 99-seat plan, um, which is part of Actors' Equity. Uh, it's something that equity equity actors fought for years ago because they were all lured here by television and film, but they still wanted to do stage work because that's where their love was. I mean, they were making their money doing five and under lines, like, you know, oh, look out, here she comes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but what they really love to do is is act. And they fought really hard for this. And um, And it, what happens is, It allows you to work with extraordinary actors, provided you're in a theater with 99 seats or less, of which we have plenty of them. And they're they're amazing theaters. They are just as as amazing as the big guns in town. And as a result, I've been able to work with Tony Award winners and actors who you've seen on television. And it's just top-notch. And you can develop work here very cheaply.
0: It's great. And I have been to a lot of smaller shows that would just blow you away they're they're beautiful and and we definitely do have the talent here as well so
1: oh incredible i've been a part i I joined celebration theater um gosh has it been 12 years ago now i think and for a tiny little 65 seat theater they are represented every year in the awards. This year, they got, I think, fourteen Ovation Award nominations. Second wow. Center Theater Group, which is obviously the big guns, okay. but this tiny little theater, with with an incredibly dedicated group of volunteers, mostly running the show, is is putting out kick ass work on a continuous basis. Right. Yeah, I mean, every year, it's like we get nominated for stuff, and we win a lot of times. I mean, we were just recognized a year ago uh, for having, you know, the best season, and I've been very lucky to be to be connected with them. Uh, a lot of my plays have, have world premieres there.
0: That's fantastic. And you actually also have Playwright 6, which is your company?
1: Yeah, I work both sides of the street. Um When I was at the Playwrights' Kitchen, which I should explain what that is, the Playwrights' Kitchen Ensemble was an amazing organization founded by some really talented actors who believed in in new plays. Um, Guys like Dan Loria, who was the dad on The Wonder Years, he was one of the, the big guns behind that. And they started a workshop for writers, and then they did play readings every Monday night with famous people who would get up, like Richard Dreyfuss, you know, we'd on stage and read some unknown playwright's new play. It was really quite amazing.
0: Fantastic.
1: Well, I was in a room full of incredibly talented writers and actors. And one of the writers suggested that, hey, why don't a bunch of us band together and do a production? And so we did. And there were six of us. She called us all together. We had um, uh, spaghetti at her house one night. And we just sort of plotted to, you know, take over the world. And we did our very first production. Um, it was an evening of one acts and there was chemistry. Um, and of the six of us, four of us are still like solidly enmeshed, which I think says a lot after all these years. We're so of each other and yeah. And Playwright Six went on. I mean, I want to say, have we done like 15, maybe 20 productions? Wow. Over this period of time, yeah.
0: And, and what are some of the, the pros and cons of doing it yourself? You are the producer, you're, you're putting up either your own work or work that you found. Um, what did you learn from that experience? and then you know, just how did it affect you as a writer if at all?
1: Well, the big plus is, is control and the fact that you can you can make it happen because it's so frustrating. For writers, they send work out and, and theaters don't respond. Contests never even let them know who the winners are. Um, there are some contests that are shams, that are taking people's money. Never pay an entry fee. Never pay an entry fee, writers. <laughs> that's, that's an important rule. Um, so that's the big plus, that you are able to have some control on how your work is presented. Um the big negative is you have to you have to take your playwright hat off and put your producer hat on. And sometimes the playwright hat suffers. Uh, that's why I always say to people, I say, make sure before you even consider doing a production that your play is solid and tight. You're not going to have time for rewrites because guess what? You're going to be marketing and you're going to be hiring and you're going to be, you know, building sets and mopping the floor and <laughs> the bathrooms. Um it, it's, it's a daunting, daunting task to do, but it's also equally rewarding. It is exhausting. You can't do it while you have a full-time job because it, it consumes you morning, noon, and night. You're always just like, okay, I did that. What's next? What's next? What's next?
0: Right. You, you are it. <laughs> You're a one-man band when it comes yeah, to
1: that. You really are. And the trick is to, you know, to surround yourself with talented people that you trust. And you learn, you know, you learn who those people are. You get to know them. You make a lot of big mistakes. Um, One of the biggest, uh, I rented a theater and I went to check out the theater on a Monday afternoon or whatever. And and the big selling point for the theater was it had its own parking lot, Mm. which, you know, parking in L.A. is a big deal. So I was very excited about this. Well, I should have come back to a production at this theater at night because I would have realized that the restaurant next door By the time my patrons show up for the play, the restaurant next door has completely taken all of the parking from your theater. And patrons have nowhere to go. It was a huge lesson because it was the deciding factor that I chose this theater because I thought, wow, it's right in the heart of Hollywood, but it has parking. It didn't have parking. So we were holding the curtain 10 or 15 minutes every night while people were circling and scrambling and walking three or four blocks to to get to us. So those are the kind of life lessons you learn. That I, I try to like you know when people say i'm thinking about producing a play i'm like okay let's talk about all the expectations you need to have it's and then, not,
0: yeah and so. there's so much you can't even plan for
1: <laughs> oh yeah like crazy stuff you know like when the air conditioning breaks down and it's summer <laughs> you play summer because the air conditioning will break down
0: it's ridiculous i i once i don't know why this theater i won't mention any names but I don't know why this theater had a sunroof, <laughs> but it was covered with a tarp, and we had a matinee, and it had been a very windy day in Los Angeles, and that tarp flew off, and light just comes streaming right onto the stage. It was ridiculous.
1: <laughs>
0: that. So it's things like that, that you, there's no way you're going to plan for that, and then you have to scramble to fix it at intermission or something, you know? <laughs> Oh, my
1: gosh. Um, my friend Henry, who's a playwright, tells this great story about... He wrote a play that took place in a prison, and it was raining, and the roof was leaking, and so, like, water was running down the walls, but he said it really, like... It made it made it feel like this prison was just really... <laughs> rich, you know, because of the water seeping... Yeah, in.
0: that's a happy accident. That, that one works.
1: <laughs> yes. But more often than not, it's the other way around. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, um... For new playwrights in Los Angeles or even, you know, anywhere in the country, what do you um, recommend in getting involved in the theater in their community?
1: Well, I always say find your home. Find your theater home because um, the best way to, to make theater happen for you is to put yourself in a situation where opportunities arise. So... You know, every theater needs volunteers. They need readers for their literary department. They need people to take tickets and sweep floors and, and just get in, go see the work, find theaters you know, that, that produce work that you appreciate and, and like and respect, and just ask the volunteer um, because what happens is it creates opportunities. First of all, as a vol- when you're a volunteer and you're around a lot, they feel indebted to you. So if you want to do a play reading and you want to borrow the theater on a Tuesday night, they're probably going to let you. I had a very, very, like you said, happy accident. Um, I had written a new play, and I was trying to figure out how to, to get it produced, and a play at Celebration Theater, where I have been in a long part of, fell through. And they had a window, and they needed to fill that window, and they were scrambling. And I said, I can do it. I can, I, can, I can put my play in here. We'll do it in an affordable way. I'll work around whatever else we have. And it turned into tr- a terrific opportunity. And it was just because I was there. Right. Yeah.
0: Just being there.
1: Yeah. And my other big advice to people, I always say dream big, start small. Hmm. Because there's, there's a story of a, a, a man who came into a lot of money, inheritance of some sort, and he rented this theater, this very expensive, glamorous theater, to do a one-man show. And all of his friends came the first night, and then he had the theater for six more weeks. And this guy went through everything he had to do, to essentially perform for no one. And it's a heartbreaking story, but it's, it's what I always tell people. I say, you know, start small. Um, do readings first. I know people hate readings, playwrights, you know, rail against readings, but reading is still the best way to see if you've got something there. And then I say, okay, before you produce your first big blockbuster play or musical, why don't you get a couple of other playwrights to so do an evening in one acts and learn together? Or I always suggest to folks, do two plays in rep. Find another playwright who has a play sort of that would be a good partner with your play. Rent the theater together, split the cost, split the work. And, and do the plays and rap or let them do their play first. And I always say, let them do first, go first and, <laughs> you know, learn from their mistakes. Um, but just sort of get your feet wet slowly. I think a lot of folks come to LA and they think, Oh, this is, you know, I'm going to make it big. And I can't tell you how many phone calls I've had for like companies from Chicago who come in, they rent a theater, they put all their money into it and they're going to take LA by storm. And, they're now in their third weekend, and they haven't had any critics come, and they're calling me asking me what to do, and I tell them, I'm afraid it's too late.
0: Yeah, you've jumped in already.
1: Ah, you know, if you're closing in three weeks, critics aren't going to come. The, the, you know, yeah. there's place for them to see. They're going to go see the tried and true, the people they know, and if your play's only running for three weeks and they come this weekend, you, you know, the review wouldn't, wouldn't run for maybe a week before you close, and so... They're not going to do that. So it's 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 a risky business.
0: Well, definitely. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears here a little bit. You um, have written in many different genres. Um, you've done uh, essays and a sitcom and um, <laughs> a musical even. And uh, I just wanted to know a little bit about putting yourself in those different genres and, and how you have to kind of adjust as a writer, you know, changing your point of view a little bit to match your audience. Yeah. And, and what that's been like and, and maybe what you learned about yourself as a writer or, you know, some challenges that you came across, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. all those learning, learning experiences that have come with exploring new territory.
1: Well, it's funny. It seems, you know, well, first of all, it's always the story drives the medium. Um, when when you look at the story, you're like, okay, is this a theatrical story? Is it the, is it the kind of story that would only work in a theater? Um, or is it, you know, is it very action-oriented? Is the type of thing that would only be a film? Um,
0: and, um, you know, switching from maybe a dialogue play or a full play you also wrote monologues how do you adjust it and keep it interesting when it's a full length or even like a like a one act that's just one person talking how do you keep that interesting
1: well i've been writing monologues for a long time my second play bible stories which is is actually a series of 12 monologues it's 12 different characters I I tend to because I work in advertising, I tend to write very economically. My plays are not long. Um, and so, you know, I sort of subscribe to the the Woody Allen Walt Disney theory that you can tell a really good story in ninety minutes or less. Mm-hmm. Um which sometimes when I'm watching movies I I wish I had a fast forward button. <laughs> but like yeah, move on, move on. It's true. Um, yeah. But, you know, monologues are great because it's a very economic form of of storytelling. You can say, you can tell a whole story in 10 minutes. And so originally I started writing other characters. But in my Play Bible stories, one of the 12 characters in in one of the 12 stories was actually me. It was my life. And that was the one that people always loved. Um, It got a nice nomination in the L.A. Weekly Awards. And and people people always singled that particular one out. And so a few years back, storytelling events are very big around Los Angeles and I had attended and, and seen a friend perform in one and I thought I can do this. <laughs> I I've only dabbled in performing sort of you know, when I moved here I, I didn't do any. I, I was behind the scenes as a playwright, but I thought, you know, I can get up on stage and I can tell one of my stories.
0: And so I did and I
1: I wrote a monologue and and got up and performed it at an event, and it went over pretty well, and I thought, I really like this, because unlike a play or a musical where a million different things can go wrong, some of which are out of your control, you know, I had a bad actor who was not giving us what he gave us at his audition, and we suffered and suffered and suffered through him, you know, up until like three weeks into the production, and we finally fired him and and recast him. Wow. But by that point, you know the critics had all come, and it was a horrible thing. So there's something really empowering about being in charge entirely. That I succeed or fail on my own. It's my material. It's me telling it, um, and I'm I'm digging it. I'm really liking it. This phase of my writing career. I don't I don't have another play in me right now. So, but I, I've written twelve monologues for me. And I've got another dozen ideas. So the whole idea is I'm going to put them all together into, I hate saying one man show. <laughs> because, you know, I always, I always worry when I go to one man shows that it's therapy on stage and someone is going to, you know, make me suffer through all of their, um, miseries. Right. And it's like the audience were, you know, were the therapist who's actually paying to help them work through their issues. So I try to be very entertaining. Um, with a nice little message at the end, you know, some surprises, it's just like a play. Well, but yeah, it
0: can have levels. That, I, I, definitely. That,
1: you know, and sometimes I go to the dark place, and it's <laughs> um, you know, it's fun to take an audience on that journey. And I've actually, um, there weren't a lot of opportunities to perform, and I was finding I was having more material than, than venues. So I started my own. I started my own storytelling event right here in my own neighborhood called Strong Words. And now I'm tapping other storytellers and people I know to come and perform at my event. And that's, that's
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. It's an incredible experience because storytelling is it's the oldest form of theater. And I still think it's one of the strongest and most powerful because it's if it's you telling your own story, the truth is is, is big. And There's-
0: There's also a level of vulnerability. There's nothing to hide behind. These are your words. This is you in front of an audience live. You know, there's, there's no props. There's no costume. Yeah. It's it's very raw.
1: I, I did a show once. I wrote a monologue about my mom and, and, and when she died and, and how I dealt with all of that. And, and I was talking to my roommate who was an actor and, And I I said something about, you know, how do you make it, you know, fresh night after night? I was doing a long run of this particular show. And he said, well, just really think about the words. And as dumb as that sounds, um, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Well, one of the producers of the show asked me to insert a line into the play um, just to help sort of, Give an audience a better understanding of, of where I was in my life when this happened, and the line was simply, "I was nine years old." Hmm. So I'm going to my monologue, and I'm clipping along, and I get to this line, and I say, "I was nine years old," and it dawned on me like that's horrific. Yeah. And I lost it. Oh no. I-
0: but that's, that's the power of the of words and just the intention behind them.
1: Yeah. And isn't it funny, though, when your own stuff can, like, make you, you know, feel that way? Like, I, I always know a, lot, a joke is funny if I make myself laugh when I reread it. hmm But, you know, it was sort of the, the opposite where I made myself cry and I was like, oh, my God, pull it up, pull it up. <laughs> no, somebody...
0: It's incredible. That's another thing I wanted to kind of ask about how as a writer it's your words your thoughts coming onto the page and yet you can still surprise yourself which is such a weird thing if you think about it like how can you possibly surprise yourself or shock yourself or find things that you didn't even realize you had put in in the work after the fact yeah can can you talk a little bit about maybe if, if that's ever happened to you and and what your thoughts on that are
1: oh yeah um I'm a big fan of uh, when I'm writing, I put things away for a long time. A play will take five years maybe to gestate for me because I won't look at it for a year. And then when I pull it out again and I start looking through and I see things that I've written that then become a launch pad for a whole other scene or another idea. And I think, I think that's amazing. And sometimes the best answers are like, right there in front of your face, and you don't even realize it until you you examine it sort of as a third person, you know, revisiting the work. So, you know, I think that's, that's, again, one of those happy accidents where it's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize this was here, and this is great.
0: And I guess it's also that same timing thing where maybe you weren't looking for it at that time or, or seeing that Because you had to experience something else before you could see it that way. Yeah. All kinds of things. That's incredible. All right. Um, I had one more question for you Gemini. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I could have guessed, actually. (laughs) How funny. Um, No, actually, I wanted to ask about um, the Dramatist Guild. And you are the West Coast representative for them. And I wanted to know a little bit about what the guild does and if you can just let our listeners know what it is and, and you know how people can get involved.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, the guild is an amazing thing. Um, for a long time, the dramatist guild people thought were just, um, the, the stuffy New York playwrights of, of yesteryear, you know, the guild and very staunch and very gray and very, um, white and male. Um, and I suppose it was that way for a while, but not anymore. Um, the Guild is a vibrant organization that in the past, especially the last, I'm going to say, five or six years, um, eh, six or seven, eight or nine, mm-hmm. has has really become a national presence and uh, an organization that, that truly represents the diverse playwriting community. The Guild is based in New York City, but they have representatives in every major metropolitan area throughout the country. I'm just one of, I think there are 24, 25, 26 uh, representatives. And so, because theater happens everywhere, you know, it's happening in Minneapolis, it happens in Dallas, it happens in Austin. And so as a result, there are playwrights in every city, and there's a representative who's just a a playwright like, like, like you, like me um who who sort of steps up and says, Okay, I'm your representative. And my job is to, you know, educate people about the guild, bring them into the fold, help them get the tools they need. Um we have events, we have like uh, a few months ago we all went down, we took a field trip to La Jolla Playhouse and we saw a brilliant musical called Hands and a Hard Body. Mm. Um and because one of the one of the major forces behind Hands on a Hard Body is a member of the Guild Board. He agreed to do a talk back with us after the show. Wow. A gentleman by the name of Doug Wright, who also wrote I Am My Own Wife and The Little Mermaid and Great Gardens, the musical. And he brought his um, one of his collaborators with him, and the two of them just gave us incredible insight to what it's like to take a, this. Really unusual premise: the idea of a contest where people hold their hands on a car, you know, for seven, ten days, and they turn it into a musical. Huh.
0: That would be interesting. You wouldn't
1: think, you know, because it's like, well, okay, if their hands are on the car, how do they move? Well, you make the car move, and so the car becomes part of the choreography. It's it's crazy, brilliant, and they're going to open on Broadway next year. So. That's the big thing for the Dramatist Guild. We help give playwrights a voice. Um, we advocate for them in some cases. We don't represent them legally, although we have an amazing pair of lawyers who all they do is entertainment law related to theater. So if you have a contract that you're thinking about signing, show it to them first. And they look it over and they say, I wouldn't do this. I This is out of order. They go through this thing with a fine-tooth comb, and these guys are brilliant, and they, they're life savers. They save lives every day. It's just, it's an amazing organization. Um, I've met some terrific playwrights as a result, uh, and it's a great opportunity to take what is a pretty insulated job or vocation, you know, where you're sitting alone, mm-hmm. and all you know, you're in a room with 80 to 100 people just like you. So we make a community where there was none. You know, actors will hang out all the time, but playwrights don't. So the Dramatists Guild helps make that happen on a local level.
0: And how would anyone get involved with them?
1: There are different levels of membership, and you can go to our, our website. We've got a brand spanking new website. It's Dramatists Guild. Dramatists, plural, guild.com. And you can apply online. There are different levels of membership. Um, It's very easy. It's very affordable. And what it does is it it gets you into the network. And if you have any kind of need for legal advice, your membership pays for itself in the first phone call. Right. It's it's the easiest selling tool that I have to get people. I'm like, do you think you're ever going to need a lawyer? If so, you want to join the guild. But there's so many other reasons. You know, the community is the biggest part of it.
0: Fantastic. Yeah,
1: and I really love it. I, I get on the soapbox, and but it's it's nice when, when I can help somebody avoid a lesson that I learned.
0: And also just the support system and, you know, everyone needs struggling to get their work out there and having other people who are also, also doing the same thing you are is always beneficial.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to do a shout out real quick because the Dramatists field is as amazing it is, as it is. It's not the only organization. I'm also very much uh, a cheerleader for a group called the LAFPI, which is the Los Angeles Female Playwrights Initiative. Oh, wow. And, um, lafpi.org is their website. And these are women who, not just women, because I'm a member, um, who banded together to, to sort of educate and bring to the forefront the idea of um parody, that that there is there should be equal opportunities because it's not the case you know they do surveys and 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 they you know they report that you know maybe in an average season 22 percent of the plays are being produced you know with women playwrights
0: it's true and we're fighting we're getting in there but yeah. it's not where it needs to be just yet
1: yeah because guess what who buys theater tickets Women.
0: Exactly.
1: More theater tickets than men. So why aren't women being, uh, don't get me, don't get me on my soapbox, but, um, so I'm really, you know, I, I love that organization and they're just some amazing people who I adore. And then we also have, um, uh, the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights, which is a local organization, and they've got a tremendous base and following, and they're so active, and they put on events and, and, and do readings and do public things at bookstores, and I'm a big fan of theirs as well. So,
0: yeah.
1: you know, there's, there are lots of opportunities to get involved in Los Angeles. I would say, you know, come out of your office and go out and meet folks.
0: I agree. It sure All right, Larry, it's that time, the quick-fire question round, if you're ready for it. Bring it. All right. Um, Okay, your favorite reality show?
1: The Fabulous Beekman Boys.
0: If Arthur Miller and Samuel Beckett were in a cage fight, who would win?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I'll probably get bitch slapped by people for this, but I would say Arthur Miller in a heartbeat, because I'm not the biggest Beckett fan, I'll be honest.
0: Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Cake or ice cream?
1: Cake. No frosting.
0: Okay. Favorite play?
1: Oh, my gosh. Angels in America. Although, if you were to say favorite play of this um, uh, century, I would say Other Desert Cities, which is coming to Los Angeles this uh, uh, December at the Taper. Go!
0: (laughs) Cool. And finally, Montague or Capulet? have to pick a side. (laughs)
1: Oh, I would have to say Capulet.
0: Awesome. All right, Larry. Thank you so much.
1: It was my pleasure. I had so much fun. I can't believe we just shot an hour.
0: I know. It was so great. I could talk to you forever.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much.
0: All right. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, For more great interviews and information, please check out our website, scriptsandscribes.com. And if you have a question about the craft or business of writing... You can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet at Scriptscribes. No and in there, just at Scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.